Luke 5, 33 through 39. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. The new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So here we are finishing up chapter 5 in the Gospel of Luke. And this is kind of a continuation of the story. Luke kind of continues from last week, this interaction with this, these people who are questioning Jesus upon his company that he keeps, and then it, it spills over into this question on fasting. And there are many directions we could go with this text. In fact, we, we have the heading in, in, in the ESV and possibly in your translation as well, and I put it in there as your sermon title, a question about fasting. So we could obviously... Go, so you, maybe you sat down and you thought, okay, this morning's sermon's going to be about fasting. And if, if you thought, well, Darren's going to tackle, he were going to talk all morning about fasting, you have not been listening the past several weeks from me. We're not going to talk about fasting, we're going to talk about Jesus. But uh, the, it is in there, the issue of fasting. So I will make a few mentions about fasting. This, the whole point is that Jesus uses this question about fasting to reveal something about himself. If the Pharisees are the ones asking about fasting, and then Jesus uses that as an opportunity to reveal something about himself. The Pharisees at this time in the Jewish faith fasted twice a week. I think it's on Mondays and Thursdays. They would always fast. They'd have the fastings and the prayers. And there's a very, they are very um, rigid on this practice. If you were seen eating on a Friday or, or on a Monday or on a Thursday, and the Pharisees would get after you because you're not keeping all the rules. They had built up tons of rules, books and books and books of rules for you to keep. And one of them was fasting on certain occasions. And so they're shocked that they show up and they see this party going on, the disciples of John, the Pharisees. They, they see these disciples of Jesus not fasting as all of them did. We're actually in the middle of the Lenten season right now, which if you're in a more liturgical church, maybe you've even uh, you've uh, observed it in this congregation before, uh, very, very Roman Catholic, Methodist practice, this idea of Lenten, which is supposed to have a fasting period. You'll fast from something. Um, I remember in, in elementary school, uh, one of our friends would always fast from bubble gum. Somebody else would fast from chocolate. Maybe he's not the heart behind it. It might be taken a little more lightly. But there's this idea of fasting. And, and, and I, I don't want to be um, negative about fasting. Fasting is a spiritual practice that the Bible really doesn't 
the New Testament, the Old Testament prescribed really only one day of fasting. It was the day of atonement. You were to fast. That is the, the one day the book of the law, the Old Testament said, this day you shall fast. And they brought in all these extra days. The New Testament does not have any sort of new moons, festivals, or Sabbaths, as Paul writes in Colossians, I think. He, he talks about we don't observe certain days or certain fasts. We, we don't believe in these rituals to bring us closer to Jesus. But at the same time, Jesus does say to his disciples, when you fast, do not be like the Pharisees who go around and let everybody know, I'm fasting, I'm fasting, so they can kind of get their praise. They say, wash your face, look presentable. You know, your fast is not unto men, it's unto God. And there's a few places in the book of Acts where the church is recorded as praying and fasting. So it's a, it's a spiritual practice that is observed in the church, and I, I'm not anti-fasting. I, I'm, I'm good with fasting. But fasting typically has this association with mourning, with repentance, with, uh, with uh, prayer. That is prayer and fasting. So it isn't just abstaining from something to go do something else. There's a very much a fasting and prayer element to the whole point of fasting. It's not, however, there's so much error that can come with fasting. And people kind of bandy about their fasting as though this is the thing that's going to bring you closer to God. Can I just make a def- There is one thing that brings you close to God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want full fellowship with your Father, repent of your sins, trust in the gospel, trust in what Christ did for you on the cross, you do not add to the gospel. You do not add to the gospel. It isn't like this. People, they'll kind of bandy about this uh, experience that maybe they had. This experience really meant something for me. And you know what? Fine. That, if that's your experience, okay. But we cannot make experiences that you have the status quo or the must for everyone else. You know what you need more than anything else? Faith in the gospel. See Jesus clearly. That's what we need. And so that's my prayer this morning. Our goal, as always, is to try to step back, look at the bigger issue of what's going on here, and try to see what this reveals to us about Jesus. What does this say about Jesus? The goal of Luke and all that he records here is that we would be able to have a firm foundation, a clear and accurate understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. We want to see him more clearly. If we read this and we walk away with just a few tips on fasting, we have missed the point. (laughs) We have totally missed the point. So my prayer is that I would proclaim and put forward Jesus as clearly as I can and that God would overcome my insufficiencies and help you all to see him and see Jesus for who he really is. So this text, that was all I'm going to say. We're about fasting. So this text goes on. It's a continuation from this earlier story where Jesus walks out of this party. The, the, the Pharisees, the disciples kind of, of, of John uh, confront him. Why is he eating with these people? And so he says to them, the disciples of John, or the Pharisees say, the disciples of John fast and often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And they, why, why is um, Jesus and his disciples, why are they this joyful bunch of people? Here's the big idea that I want to put out there. I got one big idea. So if you're making notes, here's the one big idea. 
that comes out of this text about Jesus. Jesus is the joy-bringing bridegroom who secures our joy by his suffering and whose message cannot be mixed or modified because he wants his people to truly know and have this joy. I know that was a long sentence. The big idea, Jesus is the joy-bringing bridegroom who secures our joy by his suffering and whose message cannot be mixed or modified because he truly wants his people to know and have this joy. So three things. Jesus is the joy-bringing bridegroom. He secures our, our joy by his own suffering and his message is not to be mixed or modified in any way. Jesus is the joy-bringing bridegroom. He answers their question with a question. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. They're saying, what's going on with this? And Jesus says to them, answers with a question, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus instantly takes this imagery of a bridegroom and the wedding party, and he puts himself in the, puts himself in the shoes of the bridegroom. He says, how can you expect the wedding party to fast, to be depressed, to mourn when the bridegroom is there? And, and what a ridiculous scene it would be if we all gather for a big wedding party and, and we all show up and we put no food out and somebody tries to sneak in a candy bar and we say, no, there is no eating, there's no enjoying anything in here. This is a wedding party. That's not the way it's going to go, Right. It's cake. I would, I mean, I'm out, I'm out of there as quick as I can be. Wedding sheet cake is the best cake that there is. There is no better. White, white, not chocolate, people. White wedding sheet cake is the best. But what, what is, how ridiculous would it be if when the bridegroom is with his wedding party, they would fast? Jesus is saying, the bridegroom is here. How can they fast when the bridegroom is is here. The, the, the only way that he, that he asked this question so that the only possible answer is that no, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. They will celebrate. Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom. In doing so, this is yet another way Jesus is associating himself, equating himself to being God. God all through the Old Testament in many places, talks about this love between him and his people Israel as the love of a husband and a bride. This is real clear. Jeremiah 31 is probably the best instance. If you've still got your Bible out, you can flip to Jeremiah 31. This is the telling of the new covenant. It says this, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Who says this? God is saying that about himself. He calls the children of Israel out of Egypt and he says this covenant that they had with him, they broke even though God was their husband. There is this marriage relationship. God has pictured Israel as a bride in the Old Testament and has described his love for them as a marriage love of a husband to a bride. If you read the whole first chapter of Hosea, I'm not going to because it uses provocative language and there's little ears in here, but it talks 
a lot about this marriage love of Israel as the bride and God as the husband, as this, this marriage relationship between the two of them, God being the, the, the husband, the, the groom. Um, many other places in our Gospels, Matthew, remember the story, the parable of the ten virgins, is talking about this idea of them going to the wedding feast where the bridegroom is, is, is going to show up. And there's this whole picture of we're anticipating this marriage between the bridegroom and his bride. Jesus shows up and says, look, I'm this bridegroom. John the Baptist, in his words about Jesus, and the same thing, he talks about uh, Jesus um, as this bridegroom. And most graphically, really, Revelation, the end of the story, what are we going to enjoy? Revelation 20, sorry, this 19. Revelation 19, verse 6, is a very specific event that all believers are going to enjoy. Revelation 19, 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, <clears throat> the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The end of it all, we are going to enjoy as believers in Christ the marriage supper of the Lamb, that Jesus Christ as the bridegroom and the church the believers, those who have trusted in Him, are the bride. Why is Jesus speaking it speaking in this way? He says it this way to reveal the reality that to have the bridegroom, to have this groom, is to have the highest, the deepest, the greatest joy. The joy of being in the presence and being with the one you love and more importantly, as we talked about in Sunday school, the one who truly loves you. This marriage, this being in the presence of the one who truly loves you. And what does it bring? Your joy. Jesus and his disciples celebrate because Jesus is worth celebrating. Jesus is worth having joy over. How central is joy to your understanding of the Christian doctrine? How many, oh gosh, we could just go, we could talk forever about pop culture movies of how Christians are portrayed as the stodgy, kind of fun hating, I'm very tight, I'm tight laced, and I have no good, I'm just, everything's dour, everything's it just kind of, I'm always, I'm not, I'm not into anything. We're very much negative, and Christians are portrayed as these very, just, I mean, it's footloose, right? We don't even want people to dance. Give me a break. If you don't, if you want, come to my house. We have dance party like every night. I got, anyway, that Christians are painted how, as this kind of fun-hating. How central is joy and your understanding of Christian doctrine? Jesus in John 15, 11 tells his disciples that he has told them all of these things so that his joy would be in you and that your joy would be full. Christian doctrine, faith in Christ, it's for joy, okay? It's for joy. We're not, we're not showing up to, 
to terrifyingly get right and just kind of hope to squeak by. And I'm going to go have my fun here on the side. I'm going to have my fun over here on the weekend or my fun comes and after I get out of church and Sunday evening goes on, then I go watch whatever TV show I want to watch or my Sunday night football or whatever. And there's my joy. But, I, but church is kind of what I do. And then my joy is over here. No, this is about joy. This is about your joy in Jesus. We gather for our joy in Jesus, that his joy would be in us and that his, our joy would be full. Jesus is the joy-bringing bridegroom because he brings to us what we most need, forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the clear implication. We have just come off of Jesus saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He is the joy-bringing bridegroom. We are a joy-thirsty people. We are. You watch the commercials at the NCAA tournaments. You watch those commercials. Everyone's peddling, this will make you happy. This will make you happy. This will bring you joy. This is the latest thing you're looking for. We are a joy-thirsty people, stuffing ourselves on insufficient joy-bringers. Jesus alone brings joy to the foundation, foundational level by bringing peace to our souls before a holy and righteous God. So we got to move on. Jesus is the joy-bringing bridegroom. He's here and he has come for our joy. And he secures that joy, our joy, by his suffering. Don't skip over, don't miss it. He says, this is the first kind of declaration. Guys, something's going to go down. Verse 28 through verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. That goes right over the disciples' head, and it does for many more chapters in the Gospel of Luke. It goes right over their head. The day will come when the bridegroom is going to be taken away. Now, that language is very interesting. It immediately should make you think of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 um, is quoted, kind of alluded to at least one other time in the Gospel of Luke. But Isaiah is, is a favorite of Luke, he, a favorite of Jesus, as I would say, that he goes back and references things from Isaiah many times. But Isaiah 53, go home and read this this evening. This is such a powerful suffering servant song. We'll start at verse 4. It says this, speaking of Jesus, it's a prophecy about Jesus. Surely he has borne our grieves, griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. There's another allusion. Before Pilate, Jesus doesn't say anything. Anyway, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 8, here we go. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of, li- of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus is the joy-bringing bridegroom who's going to secure your joy through his own suffering. He's going to be taken away. And at some point, we'll get here later in the story in a year or so, that Jesus is taken away. 
in his own plan. He's, he's aware of it. He knows this is going to happen. He's going to be taken away. He's going to suffer for the iniquity of his people. Why is he going to do that? To secure your joy in him forever. To secure your joy in him forever. The sorrow of our sin, the punishment from him, is laid upon Jesus on the cross. And he carries it all the way into death so that in his resurrection, which we are to celebrate on Easter Sunday, in his resurrection, we can be partakers of his righteousness. This is the great reality that Christian goes to and finds a bottomless well of joy. This well never stops producing joy for the Christian. What Christ has done, suffering our iniquity, suffering our transgression for the forgiveness of our sins. Beginning of the Gospel of Luke, the angels come and say, Behold, I bring you good news of great news of good or good news of great joy that will be for all people. Luke 2, good news of great joy. What does the gospel bring? Joy for his for their people. Joy for his people. And later, just in, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is going to go on in his, uh, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, says this in 6.22, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Those are things not going well, by the way, if you, did, if you missed that. <laughs> Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, spurn you, Spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Those are all bad things happening. Verse 23, what? Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. What in the world? That doesn't seem right. How can you leap for joy? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. The Christian can leap for joy in the midst of suffering. How and why? Because of what Jesus has secured for us in heaven. What Jesus has secured for us. Paul prays for, I think it's the Colossians church, that he, he's thankful for them because he's, he's heard of their faith in Christ, their love for all his people, and their joy that is stored up for them in heaven. These people are consumed, the Colossian church, with the joy that is stored up for them in heaven. Jesus is the, the, the bridegroom, the joy-bringing bridegroom who secures our joy through his own suffering and whose message cannot be mixed or modified. So finally, these last two parables we'll get to. Wineskin talk is, can be very dangerous talk, but um, we see the, the main point Jesus is trying to make is that he's warning against this idea of kind of syncretism. You cannot take the religion of works and the gospel of grace and try to cram them together. And say, well, you got to do some, and God does some, and then it all works out in the end. That's syncretism. And where the Christian faith is not syncretism, where you take a little of this, take a little of that, put it all together, shake it up, shake and bake, and then so there's, there's your religion that's good for you. This is not syncretism. Syncretism is the thought that you can sync various different religions up, and it won't matter because really they all lead to the same place. But Jesus tells us something quite different at some level, the idea that all religions are the same breaks down. Jesus teaches a totally different thought when it comes to his message. He states the impossibility of taking his message of grace and forgiveness and then trying to put it into or along with the Judaism's religion of works. This is what he was fighting against with the Pharisees, John the Baptist's disciples. They had their rules. Do this, fast here, fast there. And he comes and he gives forgiveness of sins. 
He comes with grace. And he says you cannot mix these two realities. Jesus comes along, the Pharisees, religion comes along and says to you, get to work. Start fasting, get to observing feast days, do the right thing, this, that, and the other. Before you know it, your list is 100 pages long. Religion comes to you and says, get to work. Jesus comes to you and he says, repent of your works. Just stop kidding yourself. Repent of your works and trust in the work that I'm, I have done. Trust in my work upon the cross for your joy. Religion will tell you to get to work and Jesus comes along and says, repent from your works. He does all the work needed and then calls us to believe in him. One commentator says it like this, the Lord's point, and for these parables, the Lord's point is that the gospel cannot be patched into Judaism or any other system of salvation by works. His teaching was completely at odds with that of the Jewish leaders. They viewed themselves as righteous. He preached the necessity of repentance. They were proud of their supposedly exalted religious status. He proclaimed the need for humility. They focused on external ceremonial, ritual, and outward observance of the law. He focused on the heart. They loved the approval of men. He offered the approval of God. Jesus is the joy-bringing bridegroom who secures your joy through his own suffering, whose message cannot be mixed or modified. And why? Because he is insistent. He, is, he, he wants so seriously that we truly know this joy. He doesn't want this mixed because he desires that those who are his truly know and have this joy that is found in him alone. Jesus is the ultimate bringer of joy. He's the one in whose presence sorrow and fasting is a ridiculous thought. Paul has this interesting thing. We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The, the weird condition that a Christian is in this modern world, in the already and the not yet, sorrowful. Because sorrowful things happen. Sorrowful. Bad things happen. So you have occupations where you have to deal with people where horrible things are happening. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Rejoicing, why? The joy-bringing bridegroom is ours. His suffering has secured our joy. His suffering has secured our joy. And that message unmixed truly brings the joy. He secures our joy through his sacrificial suffering. And hearing and believing in the pure message of the gospel brings joy to a believer that cannot be stolen away. We have a confession we make Jesus is Savior, right? We confess, we would confess, we would tell people, confess, Jesus is Savior, confess, Jesus is Lord. Can you confess, Jesus is my joy? Jesus is my Savior, my Lord, he's my joy. He is the joy-bringing bridegroom. Is the salvation he secured, our rock of hope and joy through all of life's days and all of life's difficulties? Because he can be can be he is the joy bringing bridegroom who secures our joy with his own suffering whose message cannot be mixed or modified because he wants us to truly know and have this joy he's calling for us today to repent trust him and above all rejoice in him rejoice in him for who he is father i thank you (laughs) in a world that is offering me so many joys, I have tested out enough of them to know they're empty.
and I have tasted, I have tasted and seen, like Psalm 32, I've tasted and seen, the Lord, you are good. Father, I pray that even this morning as we head into communion and singing of our closing hymn, God, give us taste buds for the joy that is found in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.